0: Welcome to episode four of CubeCuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burrows. So it's been a while. I launched the podcast in February. COVID lockdown happened in March, and then I started a new job a couple of weeks later. It turns out that the beginning of a global pandemic isn't the best time to start a new project. But we're back, and I'm happy to have an interview for you with one of my favorite people in the Kubernetes community, Marky Jackson. I've been fortunate to meet a lot of super kind and interesting people through Kubernetes and have some of them on the show. Marky's another one of those people, as I think you'll learn from the interview. Big thanks to Marky and also to all of you for listening. There will be more episodes, but they won't be happening on a regular cadence. So please hit the subscribe button in your podcast player to make sure that you get them. Okay, let's go to the interview with Marky. I'm very happy to welcome Marky Jackson to CubeCuddle. Marky is the director of open source software at OpsMX. Welcome.
1: Hey, how are you? Super happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm really good. It's great to talk to you. Um, It's been a while.
1: It has. It has. The world has been a crazy place.
0: <laughs> it has been. So, you know, usually where I start off with people is, you know, trying to find out a little bit about how they got started in computing, um, and then even, you know, what what drew them into Kubernetes and in the community. So, so maybe we could start off with like your early computing experiences if you remember those.
1: I do. I do. So when I was, I grew up in a boys' home. And so no family, but I had a friend and I would go to his house sometimes after school and his dad, you know, this was back in the Tandy TRS 80 days. Sure. And his dad was playing like this tank game I had never seen before. And I was like, that's a cool game. It's new. Like, what's the name of it? And he's like, oh, I haven't decided to name it yet. And I was like, you know, silly little kid. I was like, what do you mean you haven't named it yet? And I had no idea what you know programming was at that point. And he's like, Oh, I wrote it in this language called BASIC. And I was like, wait, you made the tank do all those things? <laughs> so this guy winds up like spending like the course of like six months kind of showing me this. And I think I was like nine years old, maybe even you know, like eight, and he's showing me these yeah. things, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And I so I learned how to write basic on a Tandy TRS-80. And i come to find out at that time, you know, it's just someone's dad, but I didn't realize at the time that he was actually a NASA rocket scientist. Oh so, my like gosh. for the space shuttle, when they're in orbit, it actually there's these little rockets that will fire off to keep it in orbit or oh, something. Sure, sure. He's the guy that wrote the code just to do that. And I was like, like I found this out years later, and I was like, uh, you didn't tell me your dad was a rocket scientist. <laughs> He's like, he's just my dad. I was like, yeah, but he's a rocket scientist.
0: <laughs> now, did he write that code in Basic?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was other. He did. He did a lot of other types of languages for it. But he's like the Basic that he wrote this was to start off their testing. Like back in those days, they didn't call it QA testing, but it was done in Basic. And I was like, wow, that's wow. awesome and frightening all in the same vein.
0: <laughs> I was. I was totally kidding when I threw that out. I had no idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was. I was years later. Was really amazed to find that out.
0: And and how did you get started like doing this stuff as a profession?
1: Uh I was in college taking you know regular computer science uh, courses, and then I did an internship. And I worked under, uh, I worked at a multimedia company. The company was Jasmine Multimedia. And the the guy that ran that, his name is Jay Samet. I'm still in touch with this guy today. And he's like written a a New York bestseller. This guy's like super awesome. But back in the days, it was just like this multimedia company that really started doing like online gaming uh, at one point. And they had a, one of their biggest products was they had this thing called multimedia yearbook, which you could, they took stock footage from like news companies that didn't get put on the news. And they made this sort of multimedia reel on a CD. And, and you got that. And that was sort of my foray into these weird people. Like there was the, they were weird, but they were cool. And I was like, OK, I want to do this forever. Right. So that's what I wound up
0: doing. Wow. And what what brought you into Kubernetes? So, Kubernetes was a strange
1: introduction for me because I did not know what it was. I worked at Yahoo and a new CEO was coming on, her name was Marissa Myers, and she was like, we want to put all search and Flickr and email on this platform. And here's the platform, you guys got to figure it out and do it. And I'm like, okay, and that was Kubernetes pre-1.0. And so I worked on that for quite a while. And then I, ever, ever since then, that's all I've done. But I never got involved in the community aspect up until about 2016.
0: Wow. That's crazy that, that yeah. they were using Kubernetes that far yeah. back.
1: They were, they were cutting edge. It's also a lot of people don't know about Yahoo. Is, is most of their stuff was written on you know, BSD. Most of everything was BSD. <laughs> So I have this real fondness for for using VSD and still do to this day.
0: I have to say, back in my days as a sysadmin, which was a long time ago, um, uh, FreeBSD was always my favorite platform for web serving. I loved. Really, it. It was so, uh, just really uh, robust, you know. Just yeah. could take a lot of traffic without falling over.
1: Yeah, you could do a lot with it, and it was super customizable. And it wasn't, I mean, it was an in-depth sort of operating system, but I don't think it was like, you didn't have to go super crazy to understand how to like, be an administrator of it. Yeah. So I
0: enjoyed that. It's interesting because I know there are folks out there who use some of the BSDs, but but it's funny because if I was to be in a position, you know, to pick an OS now, it it would probably be a question of like, which Linux distribution am I going to use, you know?
1: Yeah good times, good times. Like I was still, I was still amazed when I found out that like, I'm, I'm going to say 90% of their stuff at, at the time was all BST.
0: Yeah. And then, and then, um, when did you start, you said you started getting involved with the community in like maybe 2016?
1: Yeah, 2016. I had gone to a few of the, uh, the Kubecons, but never got like involved. And, uh, I went to gosh I can't think of which one it was but the first person that I met was Paris Mm. and then the second person that I met was as uh, was at a at a hotel bar was uh Stephen Augustus so I met like all these people would become like not only like my like dear dear friends but like also like major mentors to me like major mentors even to this day uh and that was like my foray into it
0: (laughs) That's awesome Steven's fantastic
1: he is Stephen is a he's a beautiful human like he's a beautiful human
0: he's like the fact that you met him at a hotel bar is just
1: <laughs> but see the thing and you know what's really crazy about it and this speaks to his character is he didn't know me yeah but he's sitting there talking to you like he's known you forever and he's you know it was just like that feeling and that's kind of like what keeps me and at the time also drew me into the community was it was like not only did these none of these people knew me, yeah. but they were like all really nice, and I'm like, okay, what, well, well, what kind of drugs are you people <laughs> doing? Because you're all really, really nice, and clearly something's wrong, and it's not, and it's just that's the beauty of the Kubernetes community is just that the people are just so nice.
0: Yeah, I think I think I met Stephen. Um... It was the KubeCon in Seattle a few years ago, and it was um, the night before. You know, everybody was hanging out in the hotel bar, and um, so I also I think met him in a hotel bar. I don't I don't <laughs> think that we knew each other online before that. I don't think we'd been following each other on no. Twitter or anything. But it was the same kind of experience. It was just like you know, he just was like your oldest friend, like immediately. You know, um, yeah, yeah.
1: He, he's just there's there's something about him. He knows how to, how do I say this? He knows how to bring out the best in a person, whether Mm. it's, you know, personally or professionally, he knows how to dig into a person and make them be their best. Like, I I can't say that any better.
0: Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Um, And, you know, if you were to talk a little bit about like what, what you think the community, what kind of impact it's had on you as a person? What, what would you say?
1: You know, I've gone through some, everybody goes through dark times. I've gone through some dark times. Yeah. And one of the things that's always been there for me is the community and the, the, the camaraderie. And it's not that there's you know, we don't all have motorcycle jackets or some special <laughs> patch or some awesome handshake that you had to learn, or there's not some membership fee that we pay. It's just being human. And that for me has been super instrumental during the early days of the, the, the shelter in place. Uh, I really took it hard cause I was so afraid about what was going to happen in the world. Yeah, And, and I'm trying to think about my family and all the things that people thinking about, but one of the cool things that was available was these people that were having, you know, they, Oh, Hey, we're before zoom bombs, of course, but they would be like, Hey, we're on this zoom link and everybody would get on there and stay there for hours. And it would be like, so fun. And before I realized it, I was like super like enjoying myself, even though it was weird at first, like, okay, and but, but it became a normal thing. And then it became someone's throwing up, you know, this thing, and they we're talking about random subjects. I think uh, I, I can, uh, Chris Nova tasting hot sauces. We were like, what's the deal? What is a, what's the tang? Like just those beautiful little things, but that's the awesomeness about this community. And, and, and for me personally, that saved me because I don't know where I would have been without that.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, Seth McCombs was one of those people who was just yep. like, he just left his Zoom open just like all day and random people <laughs> would just drop in and, and talk and and I participated in some of that too and have to say that it was also a, a really big comfort for me, you know, because that yeah. was such an uncertain time and it's not like today isn't uncertain either, you know, but but I feel like as as tragic as things have been with the virus, in in a way we've just come to understand it better right like they've learned a lot about how you know how it works how people get infected you know back then we didn't really know anything
1: that's that was the scary part you know i'm like thinking like I, I for me I think of the worst case scenarios and I'm like thinking that's going to happen it's Armageddon this is it we I, I was supposed to prepare for the bunker and I never bought the Costco bunker pack
0: <laughs> Oh my gosh I bought some freeze dried food not true not too long into I, it
1: I I made the mistake like I went to Costco like early on and Actually, they did. They, they hadn't locked it down, but you, they were saying it was coming. And I went to Costco and I, I bought like a lot of toilet paper because everybody was saying the toilet paper. And I, and I was like, I felt stupid. Like I, I mean, I know that sounds wrong to say, but like I was like, like somebody could have used this more. And you know, yeah. I obviously, like I didn't have to go hoard it. And I just like it was those things where you start to look at like what you're doing, how you're projecting yep. something, and. And I, you know, then I was like, okay, I need to like slow my roll. <laughs> yeah, I
0: made some mistakes too. We're we're human. Um, so you, uh, I believe, gave a keynote at a conference yeah. this morning. This was uh, it
1: was yesterday.
0: yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Okay.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was the first keynote that I ever did. It wasn't a sponsored type type keynote, and it was about the power of open source community, and. Like some of the things that I touched on was, uh, a lot of people don't realize I've been in. I was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, and I didn't know that. Yeah, I did. I did quite a few tours there. I met my son when he was eight months years eight months old. So wow. that was hard. And when I came back, I was really not okay. And uh, I didn't. You know, I didn't think I was going to make it. Like I really didn't think I was going to make it. Yeah. And open source really became that thing that brought me out of that. And uh, so I've always felt a certain obligation to open source yeah. because it saved me. And I know that exists for other people. Wow, that's amazing. And so I always want to make sure that I, I'm i always doing what I can. And then the other thing that I talked about was people, one of the questions that I was asked was, why why do you do that? Like, why? Okay, that's great. You, you're in open source. You do a little. You're giving back, but uh, I I give. I try to give as much as I can, if not more. And the reason that I want to do that is because I want to leave a legacy. Mm -hmm. If we think back to like technology, certain technology has always existed. The PC, it's always existed, and there's a legacy to that. But what you do with that technology, or how you influence someone to use that technology or use something they've learned for that technology is a legacy that you're leaving. And if you do that in a good way, that person will have a good experience and do that in a good way to somebody else and so forth and so on. And there's a legacy that I've left and that's a good, like, I don't ever want to be the guy that, you know, passes on or goes wherever people go. I don't know, but I don't want to be sitting there right before that and think, what did I do? Did I do everything? Did I do good? Oh, wow. Did I? Are people going to remember? You know, Besides my family, will people remember? And that became sort of a mission for me to say, I can do good because it can be passed on.
0: Wow. That is, you are getting super deep, dude. I really like <laughs> it. <laughs> it means a lot to me because you yeah. think
1: about this, like not everybody knows how to code or not everybody sure. knows how to do document, you know, doc, do write up documentation or, or lead a meeting, but they want to know. Yeah. And all they need is just someone to help them. Yeah. And that's, it, you know, you see that look in their eyes or the thankfulness that they have when you do that. And like I was saying, there's no special handshake. There's no motorcycle jackets. We're not a gang. Right. Although we do have patches. I realized we do now have patches <laughs> and stickers now too, but those are free to everybody. But. When you see that happiness that you give to somebody and it's technology, yeah. that's that's so rewarding. And that makes me feel good. Somebody making somebody else feel good makes me feel good.
0: Well then you you are in the right role sir as a director of open source. <laughs>
1: I'm I'm so happy like I'm happy.
0: <laughs> so tell me tell me a little bit about what you're doing there at OpsMX.
1: So, OpsMX works on a piece of software called Spinnaker.
0: Yeah. Spinnaker was a tool that came
1: out of Netflix and was, in conjunction with Google, was donated to the Continuous Delivery Foundation in 2018, maybe 19, can't remember exactly, and what what Spinnaker does is, is it's a continuous delivery tool. Yeah. So people think of Jenkins, like the shirt I'm wearing, and they think that's the CI/CD tool. Well, it can do CI/CD, uh, but there's a lot of work that you have to put into that to get it to do the CD part. It can be done. What OptimX does is they take that uh, open source Spinnaker and. We work on it. We do upstream contributions to the, the open source part, and then we also have our product that has bells and whistles on top of the open source product. Uh, and we also have another tool called Autopilot. And Autopilot is works on top of Spinnaker, but it's not s- just solely for Spinnaker. Okay. And what this does, Autopilot allows you to deploy And take out a lot of the humanness from a release. So, for example, if you know that there's certain measurements that make a release good to go to prod, you can set uh, Autopilot to learn those. Okay. So, for example, if it runs a unit test, did this unit test pass? If that's your only indicator, then it's good. Sure. You got a score of five, send it to prod. It goes a lot more deeper than that. And, and 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 our third thing that we really are wanting to do is, along with other companies that are sort of working with Spinnaker, is really foster the community and build the community so it's healthy and it's vibrant. And uh, and that's the part I get to work on, and oh, I'm so awesome. super stoked on that.
0: Yeah, I um I haven't ever used Spinnaker as like part of my job, but I've definitely played with it some, and it's a it's a really interesting piece of software. Um, you you are wearing the Jenkins Butler T-shirt. I, uh, I I expected that we would get into this territory. Some you know talking about Jenkins and Spinnaker. Um, I uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, Hudson. Um, I'm you know yep. I I was working in a Java shop you know through like the 2000s you know and I I remember when Spinnaker was you know the the I mean when when Jenkins was the tool that you you know ran your tests with and stuff you know and you know
1: it's de facto it was a de facto standard yeah. no other tool did that
0: but it's just so it's sometimes it's just kind of crazy to me like how far it's gone you know to go from that to you know this is your your java tool that you know is is going to run the tests you know when you push up your new commit you know from going to that to this is this thing that is going to run bash scripts on random machines to try to orchestrate right. something, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like people have extended this thing so far beyond what it ever was designed to do.
1: The extensibility of Jenkins is really the awesome part. And I get core code as a, as one of the core code maintainers, uh, is, is awesome. And we keep that boring if you will. Uh but the plugin ecosystem is super vibrant. So any tool that you can think of like I'm the maintainer of the Prometheus plugin, I'm one of the maintainers for the Kubernetes plugin. There's a GitLab plugin, there's this plugin, there's that plugin. Yeah. There's so much extensibility.
0: That's interesting. I didn't know that you that you maintain those things. Yeah. Um So to talk about Spinnaker a little bit more, so for folks who might not be familiar with it, um, can you kind of talk us through a little bit of the workflow, like like how you would do like a deployment, you know, with Spinnaker? Yeah.
1: So let's say you have a Jenkins job. A lot of people, uh, a lot of questions that I get are, what's the difference between Spinnaker and Jenkins and why would I choose one over the other? And really what I say to people is, is Spinnaker is not a CI tool. It does not have a CI engine in it. It's purely CD, which covers uh, continuous deployment as well as continuous delivery. Whereas Jenkins can do those, but it's a lot more overhead to get it to do those. So think about this: say you have a job that job runs and uh, it builds your code, runs some unit tests, and then you're ready for that code to do something. Maybe that something is build an image, deploy the image, you know, to Quay or Docker Hub, and then you have a manifest for you know, Kubernetes, you know, uh, namespace that you want to deploy that to. So now you're saying, okay. I've run my job, I've ran my unit test, but now I need to build and deploy. So Spinnaker will allow you to do the build and then the deployment. The build is called baking. I love the names. <laughs> uh, and then you'll do your deployment. Now it also out of the the cool thing about Spinnaker is out of the box you get a lot of tools that are like, like let's say uh, one of the ones I like is, let's say I'm going to do it uh, I'm going build an image. I want to take that image, update a YAML, and I want to push that YAML to a Kubernetes namespace or a Kubernetes cluster, we'll just say. And that's, let's say dev. And then once it goes to dev, it'll kick off another job that'll run some tests to make sure that it deployed correctly. And then before it goes to, let's say staging, I want to have somebody through either a Jira ticket or a Slack channel do an approval. So it's what we call gating. So you actually can set that up and say, it won't go, it'll sit there and it'll wait for hours until somebody approves it. And then it'll go through to the next stage and it'll say, okay, I'm ready to deploy to prod. And one of the other out of the box features is canary deployment. So you could say, all right, I want to deploy 80% of my traffic over here. And then the new features, you know, 20% down here. And you're able to do that. And this is all out of the box. And it's, you know, super easy UI. Uh, there's also there's something called the Spin CLI where you can use that and write custom scripts. Just super easy to do.
0: Yeah, I know the Netflix folks leverage the Canary stuff quite a bit in yes. what they do. And they have a whole kind of scientific testing platform that they use where they'll they'll roll the something out to canaries and then they'll they'll compare you know uh, metrics and things with what's actually running out in production or maybe they do so they do analysis yeah
1: yeah they'll do analysis on there and if it meets a certain if it gets back a a risk rating that meets their criteria then they'll say okay give five percent you know to this region give 15 to this region and that way they're able to roll back now that's another cool piece about Spinnaker is it allows you the ability to roll back to last known good state so if something goes pear-shaped <laughs> and you need to go back you don't have to sit and go like what was the magic script that we ran to do this you don't have to worry about that Spinnaker will allow you to do that to last known good state
0: that's fantastic so I uh, a big part of my life I mentioned that Java shop that I worked in um, for for many years, uh, that was a lot of my job was deploying code, um, and so I I have a lot of uh, bad memories <laughs> of of deployments okay. that that went south. And so um, I think that having that that extra safety kind of baked in, where it's easy to do canaries and easy to do rollbacks, yeah, is,
1: and to get back and not you know it, it's it makes safety and reliability is key to To your business because if your business you know you don't want to take your customers that's your bread and butter and you need to be able to do something uh, safe and reliable
0: yeah yeah I think that um, you know from the from the perspective also of you know someone on those teams who's supporting the releases you know that you know it's you don't want to you don't want things to be broken you don't want that to be the time when you figure out how to roll back, right? When, right. when things are broken, <laughs> you want right. to already have a plan for how to do that. So I wanted to chat a little bit because KubeCon wasn't too long ago. The one in Europe. Um, did you have a chance to participate in that much?
1: I did. I attended it, but I didn't like have any speaking roles. Yeah. I'm hoping um, to uh, do North America
0: yeah um can you can you share like how that experience for you compared to like the in-person kubecons?
1: cons yeah so i think i have pros and cons Uh, no maybe don't not pros and cons i'll say the goods and the bads i think the good part about this is it allows when you do it virtually it allows people that. Would not normally be able to make it to a conference due to uh, time restraints or, or, you know, budgets that don't allow for that kind of thing. It allowed that, and that's awesome because that that makes the community more global and accessible. Yeah, it
0: was a seventy five dollar uh, ticket, you know, whereas like yeah, if you were you going know, to an in person KubeCon, you know, expect to 1500 spend fifteen hundred Yeah, expect yeah. to drop a few grand on that. Your your company hopefully will drop the few grand. The
1: part I miss is. Uh, is those in-person things, right? Like, uh, so the last one that, you know, we had in person was San Diego. And that was, I can't even tell you what magic that was. (laughs) There's just a certain magic where these people that live in all parts of the globe, they get together and you're having now meals with them and you're laughing and you're drinking and everybody's having just fun. It's like, it's fun. And I, I miss that. To be able to see somebody that, you know, most of the year you're just, you see them in a little box, Yeah. but to see them and embrace them and then have a meal with them, it brings the sense of community together. Uh, but you know, we can't cry over it or <laughs> I want to cry over it. I did cry over it, but, uh, I I'm, I'm thankful and scared of what the next in-person cube is going to look like.
0: Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that because so I was in San Diego, too. And I agree about the magical part. And um, interestingly, it was my experiences there that led me to decide to do this podcast. um, Because uh, it got me thinking about the fact that I, you know, because I was constantly running into friends and really awesome people I knew in the community, and, and it got me thinking about the fact that I, I, you know, sort of have this avenue, you know, to talk to a lot of really interesting people, you know, that, um, right. that it would be sort of a shame not to take advantage of, you know. Um, but, but I was there, and I also thought it was a, a really special experience, but it also was there were so many people, right? And like this
1: one was like compared to the other ones, like if you went from Austin to this one was like, oh, wow, we've grown.
0: Yeah, (laughs) we've really grown. So day one, you know, I come out of the keynotes and I'm just standing there in the hallway like. Like, where do I go? There's these floods of people going yeah. like up the stairs and lines for the elevators. And it's like, how do I even get where I want to go? And
1: yeah, I, wa- I have a funny story about that. Okay, go for it. I came out of the keynote just like that and froze. Like I had a panic moment and I like didn't know what to do. And I'm like super frozen. I, I couldn't move. And who comes strolling up to me? It's Rin in Paris, and they're talking to me. And I think they recognize, like, how? I, I, I guess maybe I did look probably ghostly white. And they're like, hey, Marky, you OK? Let's go check. Let's go hang out. And like, they moved me aside from everybody. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, man. You, and I told him, I was like, you have no idea. I was completely having a panic attack, and you just <laughs> saved my life. Thank you so much. It happened another time, and Chris Short happened to find oh, me. Wow. And he's like, hey, looks he goes, you know, we're former military. He's like, hey, it looks like you're having a panic attack. Let's go stand over here and let's talk. And, and I'm like, dude, you have no idea. You just saved my life.
0: Wow. Yeah, no, I've I've definitely had thoughts about, like, like after being isolated, for, you know, I've been— pretty much isolated for 6 months now, you know, and and then yeah. you know, there's no end in sight. And so I I certainly wonder like if there ever is an event as big as that, and I think arguably there may not be, you know, that that even after the new normal comes that you may not see people traveling as much to events like that. Right. But but if there were an event that big, like how am I going to adjust to that? Like what kind of social anxiety am I going to have after, you know, having been alone for so long?
1: Yeah, I'm just going to walk around with a sign that when I see somebody it says, can I hug you? <laughs> can I hug you? Is it okay? Can, if you can just hold this green one or this red one that says yes or no, because I really just want to hug. <laughs> yeah,
0: I do miss the hugs. In a non-creepy way, of course. Yeah, of course. I do miss the hugs from KubeCon from for sure. Um, yeah. Do you remember, I know this is uh, a little uh, off the top of your head, but... Um, Can you think of any talks that you saw at KubeCon that really like resonated with you that you'd like to share with people?
1: Uh, Well, I I know a keynote that stuck with me that even till this day, I still go back and watch. Oh, okay. And that's Ian Ian Coldwater's, uh, her keynote. uh, Their keynote was phenomenal. That was an absolutely phenomenal. Like I can't, I would pay to see that. It's like one of those movies you're like, yeah, I'll see that, I'll pay again uh
0: yeah though that was from San Diego, right?
1: yeah, that was th- that keynote stood out to me in terms of talks uh Chris Nova gave some really good talks on uh, EBPF and and how they're doing Falco, so I really enjoyed that yeah. uh Duffy did some great talks, and there's others there's all there's
0: a whole lot more yeah, of course, I really enjoyed Duffy's this year, the one about SetComp comp that was really good. And uh, mm-hmm. I definitely plus one the the thoughts about Ian's talk. That talk had a really big impact on me because I'm somebody who um, I was extremely inter- interested in security early on in my career. You know, I was working at an internet provider as a sysadmin in like the late '90s. You know, and and security <laughs> wasn't just something I read about, right? Like I was seeing right. boxes get rooted, like right and left, and and. And so um, I don't know. I developed a really big interest in it, and after a while, that sort of died down. And I don't I don't know why it was, but I feel like a little bit of it was the amount of energy it just took to keep up with like the State, latest uh, vulnerability, yeah. the latest Whoa. thing. You know, and and I think that after a while, I I just sort of fell out of it. But but that talk of Ian's really did renew my interest in in that mm-hmm. and. I really loved especially that idea of, um, you know, the, the cool new feature that you bring out, you know, like you've got this idea of how your users are going to use it, <laughs> but there's other people out there that are going to try to do gonna... something very different Bad that actors, you did not yes. expect. And um, I think the, the after seeing that talk, you know, earlier in that day, there had been the announcement about the ephemeral containers. Yep. And then seeing Ian's talk, one of the things that just came to mind, you know, almost immediately was, oh, wow, people now are going to build these ephemeral containers that are full of hacking tools. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, not something, yeah, it's, it's just... not something I had considered at all when I first heard about it, you know?
1: You know, and you know, one of the things that when I think about from a security standpoint, how easy some things are yeah, and, you know. People will go on the internet. I think in, in Seattle, uh, Liz from uh, Aquasec did did in one of her keynotes did a thing where, where she just pulls some YAML off the internet and just shows how easy it is, you know, to root a pod. And 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 it's like, it's scary to think that there's probably a lot of organizations out there that don't really even understand the the implications of what they currently have sitting in prod.
0: Yeah, the um, the talk that that Ian did this year with Brad, is it Giesman? Yeah. Is his last name? Um there was there was some QA afterwards and at one point Brad literally said someone was like, Oh, you have to like have admin on the cluster to do all these things you're talking about. And he was like, Oh yeah, that's trivial.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, that's the scary that's the that's the part that, that scares me. Uh, it definitely keeps me up at night when you think about Kubernetes and, and a company that may be dealing in Kubernetes, and uh, I know there's companies that I've worked at, and all I think about is, please, I don't want to end up on the front of Hacker News. Like, I don't want to end up on the front of Hacker News that we got rooted or, you know, encrypted our whole clusters or something. <laughs> oh. uh, it's it's a frightening prospect.
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, nowadays it's... it's uh you probably would just be doing a bunch of bitcoin mining on them that you hadn't employed had to do exactly <laughs> yep so so this actually brings up a topic that is is interesting to me which is you know one of the things again has talked to a lot about is the fact that um a new person wandering into kubernetes wouldn't have any idea, you know, that like a default kubernetes cluster that they were going to deploy, you know, wasn't locked down, wasn't secured, right. you know. And and I think that in some ways this this topic goes beyond just security, you know, that like someone someone walking into kubernetes doesn't necessarily know what they're getting, right? That that they yeah. they assume that everything has been, you know, set up in a way that's going to, you know,
1: They assume safety exactly. Exactly, and that's the that I think it's a it's a double edged sword because you have to you have to have the the bar the entry bar lowered a little so people can understand how to use something, but at the same time, you have to hope that they will. Be well-rounded to figure out. Hey, there's a security implication. Don't take this code that you see from a you know, a webinar or some sort, and just throw it in and prod and and show it to to your boss and say this is good. We should use this. And they're like, yeah, do it. And trust me, I've seen that actually happen. So that's sure. why I use that as an example. Uh, but I also think it's it's up to uh, in in a in a degree, it's up to the the open source community to also show those things. And that's why I like, you know, Duffy shows these things, Ian shows these things, Brad shows these things, where... You know, if I write an operator and I'm talking about you know CRDs and how you can work with the API, I'm thinking something you know technical in nature. But what they're doing is a is a greater service, where they're saying, "Hey, you're writing all these things. Well, you're thinking about that. That's great. But are you thinking about this?" And they're helping, and they're showing, and they're 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 giving back to the community by that. Uh, That's that's it's it's an invaluable thing, and it's it's uh, it's great. I think you're going to start to see more open source communities start to, like, do that. You're going to see newcomers coming just to get into the security aspect of it.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think if you look at, you know, Unix in general and and Linux even, that... You know these things tended to start off pretty wide open, right? and then and then, mm-hmm. as they got more mature, you know that was when better tooling showed up and you know better better patterns for how to manage things. Um, so I think from that perspective, it's not surprising, you know that like the early Kubernetes right. was like
1: natural evolution. yeah
0: yeah so what what kind of advice would you have for someone who's like brand new to Kubernetes?
1: Uh, the first thing I would say is depends on what you want to do do you just want to learn Kubernetes or you just want do you some people want that you know for their job they have to understand Kubernetes yeah. or they, they hear about the CKA and they just want to take that they don't want to get involved with the community aspect of it you know what I would say is you know the, the there, there's certain like the Linux Foundation has really good training yeah. there are uh, uh, I think his name is Brett and Carlos Sanchez put out something on Udemy. That was a really good course. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's things out there that you can do to learn, but what I always suggest is there's so many cool local development tools like Kind or Minikube. Throw one over There's even the 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 K3s. I haven't really used that one that much in depth, but you know, throw one of those on and just, you know, find some of that code that you see online and try breaking it. That's what I would suggest. Now, there's other people that want to get involved in the community as well as learn about that. I always suggest that for the people that want to do that, like for Kubernetes, go to the Contributor Experience meetings because you'll see, you know, there's the there's the Contributor Experience monthly meeting where they will talk about what the overall project is doing because certain SIGs will come and give an update. Yeah. And you get to learn about all these things that are going on. And a lot of times you'll hear good first issue or this team is, you know, you know uh, help wanted." it. You hear about these things and you can, that you get a chance to volunteer there yeah. and move up the ladder, uh, the, the open source ladder. So those are, those are good ways. I always also suggest some people are shy. They don't want to do that. Uh, and if you feel that you, 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 you don't. you're not ready to do that and maybe you'd like reach out to me like i'll help anybody okay reach out to me i will uh i'm i I think i'm known as a very approachable person uh i know that because people do approach me so that's a good thing (laughs) uh please if, if you feel that you want or or if you're a person of color or a female or underrepresented group reach out to me i will do everything in my power to to help mentor nurture and 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 get you involved
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I I think the the community does do a good job of being welcoming to new folks and, and also giving them opportunities, right? And so yes. you mentioned the good first issue thing, which I think is brilliant. And if people people aren't familiar with that, basically, you know, issues on GitHub will have a label on them that says good first issue. And that means that this is a good place for you to get started if you just want to make a contribution, but you don't know how everything works, right?
1: Right. It's also, it's also good to understand that you don't have to be some... I don't like saying the term, but I'm going to say it for lack of a better term. You have to be some rock star programmer. Sure. You don't even have to know how to program. You want to write documentation, help run a meeting. Uh, There's so many things that you can do. There's marketing. Uh, There's just so many things that you can do in the Kubernetes community. And the other beautiful part is, let's say you want to learn how to code. Nobody's going to like you know, nobody's going to come be like, oh, nah, that's not going to work. It, people are going to be nurturing and help you. Yeah. So it's just one of the things that I say, uh, the, the only one requirement that you have to have is passion. You have to want to do it. And and if you can only give one hour a month, one hour a week, that's fine. Uh, there's a community and that the community doesn't it's not just about tech that's the beauty yeah. of it it's not it's about it's it's a family i said tweeted something out the other day and i said you call it an open source community i call a family <laughs> and that's what it is for a person that didn't grow up with I, I have my partner and my kids and 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 their family but uh i didn't grow up with a family yeah. this is my family i got to choose my family and that's Super, super. That's an awesome feeling. And I take, I take a lot of pride in that. I'm thankful for all of the mentors that I've had in this, in in this project. You know, George Castro, Paris, Stephan Augustus, uh, Pop, uh, just so many. Carlos, I I wrote down a list. I actually have a list. Duffy, (laughs) Ian, just these, these, these people, Jason, Chris Short, Cody, Jeff, Bob.
0: That's awesome, more.
1: Paul Burt, Perco, <laughs> Paulo, Chris. I'll, I'll stop there. But I literally have like a full page that I was like, okay, I got to think of this person. I want this person. Everybody's done something, and I just hope yeah. that I can not only give back to the community, but what they gave to me, I can give to somebody else, so they can give it to somebody else, and then that becomes that legacy.
0: Yeah, there, there, there certainly are a lot of. Really, really kind people in the community, and it's definitely um, a lot of what has kind of sparked my interest in in Kubernetes is is uh, just the the people that I've met. Um, it's definitely been a big yeah. part of it. Um, so, you have been on the Kubernetes release team?
1: Yes, uh, I have been. So, there's two types of the way the release is done. They're every quarter, they do a release. They're currently in the 1.20 release, and they open up uh, what they call shadow applications. And the shadow application is, is for every release, there'll be a lead for a given area. For example, enhancements, or bug triage, or CI signal, or comms, or docs, they'll have a lead of that for that given release, and then they'll have a shadow. I started off doing that, and then I became the lead And then I was given the amazing opportunity by the release managers team to actually join. So instead of being uh, on a quarterly where you roll off and new people roll in, I'm now a release manager associate. I stopped for, I was on and then I stopped for a bit due to some health issues, but now I'm back on doing it. And, and that's, uh, you know, Sasha and, and Carlos and, and, uh, Stefan, those are people that they truly, truly trusted in me and and I'm, I'm really thankful. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I, I wanted to, um, actually talk about the shadowing thing a little bit, you know, based on what we were just discussing, because again, I think that's another one of those kind of good entries, you know, if people are looking for a way to get involved, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's literally, you know, you're not expected to come in knowing how to do this stuff, right? Like, People are gonna show you what you need to do.
1: Yeah, so I started off on the bug triage team and essentially uh, what happens is, is at the beginning, at the end of a release, the current leads for that release will nominate new leads. And then those new leads, they'll open up the shadow application. So if you're on the uh, Kubernetes Slack, if you go to the uh, hashtag release management, and SIG release they'll usually say they'll post an issue and say shadow applications are open uh, and that will have a link to a Google Doc and you go and you fill that out and then those leads will sift through they'll make their choices and then you get to serve on that team uh, it, it's, a, it's a really it's a really fun thing to do uh, and it's, it's a great way to get involved in the community uh, I know I remember one time it was like, we had like 30 applications and it was like 60 and for when I think the last one there was like over hundred applications. Wow. So it's like, it's gaining that notoriety, not because it's like some secret club or something like that, but because it's a way to get involved in the community. And give back to open source. So it's a really, and as you were saying, you don't need to be some rock star coder. You'll get, you don't need to be, you'll get walked through on what you need to do. And that's the whole process of being a shadow is to learn.
0: Yeah. You know, it's something I've discussed with people, you know, on the show in the past who has been, you know, as, as much as I appreciate, you know, your love for open source and that idea of giving back, you know, there there are other benefits. Right. Like like I, yeah. you know, establishing yourself in that community is, you know, it's a, a really it's good a career. Program. That's a. Yeah.
1: Yep. People recognize uh, who is. So I mentioned earlier about the community, about the ladder. So in the Kubernetes community, there's a ladder. And this ladder is what you work your way up. So there's a certain things like what you do is you, you show up, you start showing up, you start making commits, and then you can have someone sponsor you to become an org member. And uh, you have to have two people sponsor you. Those two people have to have been org members for a certain amount of time. And this is the GitHub they have, right? to, yeah. Yeah. So now you get you get involved in that and then you, you know, now you're part of the org and you can do certain things and then the next step is to whatever SIG you may be working in, you want to try to work to become a reviewer and now you get another level of privileges and then after that you become an approver and it's a whole nother level of privilege. There's this, this ladder and you know it's not for everybody, that's yeah, not of for course. everybody. And it doesn't, even if you don't do that, it doesn't mean you can't contribute in some way. There are so many things to do here.
0: Of course. And, but, and uh, you know, there are a lot of people who do a lot of that work who are getting paid to do it, too, right? They're not, they're not doing this on their own time in the evenings and the weekends. It's, right. it's their actual job, you know.
1: Some people do have, this is their full-time job to, to do that. Uh, I know some companies are really, really cool about that, like they'll actually allow you to spend 20% of your time working on open source. I used to work, back when I was an actual software developer, I worked for a company that allowed me to spend 20% of my time doing upstream work.
0: Yeah. Now, I, I imagine that you all, maybe not you specifically, but that folks at your company are doing upstream Spinnaker work?
1: Yes, I am one of the rare because I work in three different communities: Spinnaker, Jenkins, and Kubernetes. But uh, it, 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 it—most everybody does some type of contribution to Spinnaker.
0: That's great. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, like you said, I, I think it's important to emphasize that you know there's lots of different ways to contribute. Um, I'm somebody who coding has never been my strength, and it's not. As much from a lack of ability as a lack of interest, you know. I've just never been right. really driven to do it, and um, but I've contributed to a number of open source projects just by like fixing typos and READMEs, you know, that would be blockers for people, yeah. you know, because they can't copy and paste the thing, you know, that they need to yep. get going, you know, and and there's there's uh, there's lots of things you can do.
1: Yeah, there's so there's so many things that you can do. So again, if you're if you're listening to this and, and you don't you don't know or maybe it's confusing, reach out to me. I again. I, I know you can reach out to any one of the other people that uh, you know you, you hear or see. But if you feel, please reach out to me. Uh, I will help you in any way possible. That's
0: fantastic, and and I know you mean that. You're such a such a kind person. Um, all right, so. You know, we were originally going to record a few weeks ago, and then life happened. Um, um, You had some issues, and then we ended up getting really bad smoke here in Portland to the point where I was like literally coughing and I'm didn't want so to record sorry. because I, I was like uh, breathing smoke all the time. But um, but we had asked uh, folks on Twitter for some questions for you, and uh, we got a few responses. So I want to ask you, uh, I probably can't get to all of them, but um, but I wanted to ask about a few of these. Um, I think it's Waleed Shari. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. Um, Waleed. Uh, asks your impressions and thoughts regarding Red Hat OpenShift Tecton operator and the Tecton product Uh, in IBM?
1: Yes, I think it is a really good thing. Tecton is part of the CDF, Uh, I like it. I know one of the leads that works on that and I know he's passionate. And what also I like about that is their extensibility. So they're using, uh, they're building that piece of software in a way that it extends very easily across other applications, especially applications or, or platforms that are within the CDF. So there is an interoperability SIG within the CDF and there's a lot of work happening there. And Tekton is probably one of one of the three most focused
0: areas. I've heard really good things about Tekton. I haven't used it myself, but but is that is that more focused on the CI part, or does that do this? It's more
1: focused on the CI. That's yes. what I thought.
0: So you might use it along with Spinnaker.
1: That is correct.
0: Cool. You'd use
1: it like you can use it in a little bit of a different way than than you would, let's say, Jenkins. It's not a replacement for Jenkins. It does things sort of slightly different, but in the higher uh, abstraction, yes, it is a CI.
0: Cool. And then um, we had a question from Eric, uh, who's at ebcardi Eric. on Twitter. Um, actually, he had several questions, uh, and I'll, I'll uh, thanks by the way to the folks who who did you know send us some questions, and I'll I'll uh, link to their Twitters in the show notes. Um, but uh, Eric had asked, uh, what's the general perception of auto remediation, and where is its current stance with pipelines?
1: Auto And I think he's referring this into Spinnaker. Auto remediation is that, that rollback mechanism. So if you put some type of, uh, we're going to call it a stage in Spinnaker, that if it sees there is something abnormal, let's say you, you deployed a pod and you're getting a crashback loop. What do we do? What cha- So auto remediation will go through, look what changed in that particular YAML manifest. And then roll back to the last known good state. That is an area that continues to be worked on and looked at the map. There's a lot of different use cases for how you want to do that uh, and what you want to do that for. But I can say for a lot of the basic Kubernetes things, crashback loop, image pool error, things like that, it will automatically do that. I think... I'm gonna put on my thought leadership hat. It, I think
0: <laughs> you, we're did, going you did. You did give a f- keynote yesterday,
1: so I did. sure. I, think you're yeah, yeah, I a guess I got to do that now. Uh, I think we're going to find more in probably the next six months to a year more tools having auto remediation in them for just like if you think about operators, yeah. right? They do that sort of same thing. Uh, you're gonna find that become more commonplace because I think the goal is, is to start having more sense of safety and security in what you're trying to do. Yeah. So I think back in the data center days, we called that the five nines. In software days, this is what it's going to be auto remediation. And I'm 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 seeing that peppered in various verticals that are really trying to do that. And I don't think it'll be long before we see something in, in Kubernetes it's, land. It's
0: interesting because there there are some questions that come up, right? Like like auto remediation could also go haywire right it could do the wrong thing and and end up potentially causing you bigger problems you know that than yeah. you already had if it's not if it's not thought out well and this sort of gets into the territory of like these systems get com- com- so complex that there's like emergent behavior you know there's like things that happen that you hadn't yeah. imagined you wind right? up
1: with something you're like wait I didn't think that was gonna happen I think as we get further, I think as we get into the boring of a new, you know, I think Kelsey Hightower said, you know, let's make Kubernetes boring. Uh, I think as we get more into that, is where we'll be able to start looking at not so much tech debt, but feature set and how we want to do that. I guess you you define what's a feature versus what's tech debt, Uh, and I think the auto remediation is going to be something that's really. The, the industry is gonna drive that because it's there's a need for it. Because companies just don't have enough people. You don't have enough people to to man what you already have and you, you you have technology, you're trying to stay advanced, but then you're trying to, you know, move at the speed of Grease Lightning and it's like, you know, I gotta have something that can help me that's outside of, you know, what my human capacity is is reliant upon.
0: There's a really a really interesting talk from Warren Hockstein who works at Netflix um, that actually is quite a bit about Spinnaker and it's uh, about some of the weird things they ran into. You know, where like these oh. these kinds of features that are supposed to make things more stable end up actually having the opposite effect. And I'll I'll dig that up and link that in the show notes. It's, yeah, it's,
1: and and I'll be honest with you. Uh, Because I know a lot of the reason Chaos Monkey was created was to surface these things faster. Yeah. Because you start running these very odd edge cases and you see, can I, is it resilient enough or do I start seeing this sort of really strange behavior? Yeah. So Chaos Monkey was born (laughs)
0: for that. So for folks who might not be familiar with Chaos Monkey in the Kubernetes world, um, it's a thing that... Was written at Netflix that just basically will randomly kill instances like containers, you know, and yeah. they use that with their stateless applications, I think mainly. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, you want to make sure that the application can survive, you know, hosts coming and going. Yep. And and yeah, I've talked to, I know several folks on that SRE team there at Netflix, and, and I've talked to them about this. And one of the things <laughs> that they've mentioned to me, um, uh and I can't remember if it was Lauren or someone else, but but that um that one of the things that happens is Chaos Monkey actually ends up unintentionally helping to prevent like memory leaks because
1: because <laughs> <laughs> it shuts something off. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, it restarted the JVM, and you're like, why did it do that? You know, Somebody else is looking at the heap, and they're like, whoa, this is really bad. Whoa, it saved us, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: So I think there was a period of time where they turned it off for some reason, and they ended up actually having problems with, with uh, yeah, yeah, it's these systems yeah. It's a good
1: tool. I don't suggest for anybody listening to this, please don't just go and install that in your oh, production yeah. cluster right? Yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> Um and so Eric had another question. He he asked uh how are AI uh slash ML pipelines different than CI C D
1: okay so that's a that's a very in-depth topic. Uh I am going to cover that because this is actually my favorite topic. Okay. So the, the pipelines are when we think of regular CI CD, we have you know, like I said, CI will run, it's tech a test, it says it's good, it goes to CD, CD says, okay, I'm ready to deploy it to environment A. Great that's the ICD when you're thinking about ml uh, you know AI or ml ops as we're talking uh, you have to think about how is this model going to get trained how is it going to take data uh, or or a given scenario and train something and then get smart enough that it doesn't have to do that there's a lot more involved in in how you set that up it's it's super fragile and the, the I think that we're gonna see in the next three to six months, I love doing my three to six, <laughs> six to a year. Uh, we're gonna see in the next three to six months, a lot of companies being born out of this. Because when you think about MLOps, you have let's say unstructured data. And I have to now run a pipeline that's going to get that data. It's going to take the data and find some structure based off of a given set of parameters that I may be looking for. I then have to take that data, make it as structured as I can, and then keep bringing in data and doing the same thing. But I have to, now I've got this big chunk of data, am I pulling out what I need? How am I verifying that the data is actually right? So I'm running a, you know, a regression test against it to make sure I'm getting out the same, you know, whatever I'm looking for. Uh, so doing that with CICD, when not done correct can be a nightmare. Now I can say from the, from the Jenkins side, a lot of the things that people are doing with uh, uh, ML and, and MLOps and deep learning and things, they're running a Jupyter sure. notebook. There was a recent uh, Google Summer of Code in the Jenkins project. Uh, the gentleman's name was Lohi and Lohi built a plugin for his Google Summer of Code project that would actually run all of these data and he was you know, pulling like on flowers and, and uh, diabetic specs and all of these awesome things. I was the mentor of that, so shameless plug. But it was cool to see how we're taking existing tools and their extensibility and taking some of these new verticals like ML Ops and AI Ops and now using Jenkins to do these things for us and churn through a lot of data and give us meaningful results. And then hopefully that answers your question, Eric. If not, you know where I
0: live. <laughs> and then <laughs> Eric also wanted to know what makes a good burrito.
1: Oh Eric Eric, we share burritos photos on Twitter actually so I am always so what makes a good burrito? It's carne asada. For those that don't eat meat, I apologize. This is not for you. <laughs> uh it's carne asada it cannot be cut small the carne asada has to be a little bit big and a little bit thick you want to cook it medium rare you want to have a good rice that has a little bit of wetness to it of course you got to have pico de gallo you got to have sour cream and if you live in san diego it's got to have french fries
0: okay (laughs) um and then our friend duffy Cooley had a question for you um, his question is, one of my fave misconceptions of GitOps is that you must have software in your target environment applying changes. What is Spinnaker doing to address this perception?
1: One of his misconceptions about GitOps is that you must have software in the target applying environment. changes. What is Spinnaker doing to, to apply changes? Spinnaker will allow you to take artifacts and that artifact can be software, add that yeah. to your pipeline and deploy it ahead. So you have that ability. There is uh, Spinnaker as a service where they are doing some work around deploying clusters. So you can spin up an environment, whether it be an AWS or Azure and beforehand deploy your code, run what you need, turn it down if you need. But you do have that ability. I saw some cool things. Right outside of Spinnaker, I used to work for AT&T, and we had—I uh, worked on the global Kubernetes team, and we had to spin up like massive amounts of Kubernetes clusters. Some were shared clusters, some were uh, single tenant clusters. And we were like, what are we going to do to do all of this? I'm like, I'm just going to write, like, this crazy Jenkins pipeline <laughs> that you can enter in a few parameters. And we'll be able to, like, run this. that we connected it to JIRA. So when people would put in their thing, once the manager approved it, it would just, the job would run. And it would spin up a cluster using COPS. I was so proud of myself. That was doing CI and CD. It's all, all in Jenkins, Jenkins.
0: Bash when you, when you go all the way It's down. Yeah, it's a... It's...
1: There's the, there's the funny picture that says, uh, only you
0: can prevent bash fires. I think Ben the Elder put like 90% that one out. of what happens on the internet is controlled by Jenkins and shell scripts. Um, yeah. And then we have uh, one more from uh, David McKay, who is at Raw Code, R-A-W-K-O-D-E. Uh, David says, uh, running yep. something in the target environment means that our CI system doesn't need to be hard-coded with all the environments. Um, this makes ephemeral environments trivial. What can Jenkins or Spinnaker do to help make this possible too?
1: To student, so Jenkins has the ability, if you want to write the code to do it, you can easily spin up an environment and then do your stuff, you know, send something to it. Uh, but let's say, for example... Uh, in Jenkins, you have the construct of an agent. The agent is where uh, your your job workload can take place. There's the Kubernetes plugin that, if you want, you could spin a pod up in a given namespace, let your job run on that pod, and then that pod will stay up for ten seconds and then go away. Oh wow! That currently exists in in Jenkins. It's with the with the Kubernetes with the Kubernetes plugin. Now with Spinnaker. There is the ability to spin up clusters. It just requires a little bit more tooling. So natively, it just doesn't spin it up. But if you want, you can do it. And it's not It's not like hard. There's just a little bit more under the hood magic yeah. you have
0: to do. Uh, thanks again to all the folks who sent us questions on Twitter. Um, if you uh, yeah, Thank if you, if you, everybody. Uh, follow um, the podcast uh, Twitter account, that's at CubeCuddlePod. Um I will uh, Usually, if there's enough lead time, if I know ahead of time when a recording is going to happen, I'll, I'll put out a call for some questions. And uh, we really appreciate the folks who, who, uh, who supply those. Um, Marky, I want to ask you, uh, while we're talking about Spinnaker, um, what kind of patterns have you seen uh, people using with it that you find like really interesting?
1: I see a lot of deployments to Kubernetes. So for example they will want to have multiple targets. So they'll have one particular pipeline that will trigger five different other pipelines to do multiple different things. I've seen machine learning being used with it. I've seen deep learning being used with it. Uh, Data science being used with it. Those are the cool sort of academic things that I've seen. But I've seen a lot of businesses a lot of large businesses adopting Spinnaker and that really speaks volume to companies wanting to really take control over that continuous delivery continuous deployment and have that flexibility and I think what it is is people want to deploy faster but they want to do it in a way that they feel comfortable yeah and that's, that's why we're seeing a lot of these tools take a lot of center stage.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of shops in the past would have written their own, you know, deployment tools. But uh, why why do yeah. that when there's all these people out building things? It's
1: exactly. It comes – so many things come natively out of the box uh, for Spinnaker. And to plug in, like, you know, to plug your Jenkins in, it's not it's not like some yeah. major task. And you don't have to get rid of your Jenkins, like – People think that they have to get rid of one yeah. to have the other, and that's it's not It's really the case. easy to do
0: things like blue-green deployments, too, it, yes. which, again, is another really, really smart thing to do safety-wise. Um, cool. Well, I think that's all the questions that I had, Marquis. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't discussed? Or
1: I wanted to just say two things. Okay. One, three things. Three. I promise no more than three. One. Thank you for having me. Oh, you super, super, super awesome. I'm a huge fan. uh, Not only of the podcast, but of you as a human. Thanks so much. Thank you very, very much. Number two, if you want to get involved in the community and, and you're, you know, you don't, you don't know where to start or you're afraid. Find me. I will help you get involved in the community. I will help you do any. You want to learn how to code? I'll help you <laughs> learn how to code. I want to help people. And the third, and this is really important to me, a lot of people helped me. Uh, I mentioned their names and, and I won't yeah. go through those again, but uh, I'm super thankful for uh, the life that I have. Like I'm a, I live a very privileged life and I'm, 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 I'm aware of that. I'm thankful mm-hmm for everything that I've been given and this, uh, opportunity that I've been given and this, this gift. So for the people that helped me, uh, I, I, I'm just can't thank yeah,
0: you. I, I have to plus one that, I mean, I'm somebody who, uh, the way I like to describe it is that I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of my career is dependent on having a lot of privilege. You know, I, I came into my very first job, you know, you know, Unix was a hobby of mine. I knew a little bit about Linux, you know, but I wasn't an expert at it or anything. And the fact that I looked like the people who worked there, you know, the fact that I was another white guy, I'm sure, you know, made a difference in me being able to get that job and and how I advanced. And I think that's that's been the case for a lot of the career, a lot of my career. So I definitely want to echo what you said in terms of you know, if there's people out there who you know are uh, you know uh, uh, black part of the black community or, you know, uh, any other underrepresented group. If you, you know, if there's some way that I can help you, please do feel free to reach out because, um, it it is really important to be able to give back. And, um, it's not only something that's the right thing to do, but I think it just makes you feel good as well. So, yeah. Thanks so much, Marky. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was great to talk with you.
1: I thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I really do appreciate it. I'm a, I'm a huge fan and uh just just thanks for the opportunity
0: all right take care you too cube cuddle was created and hosted by me rich burrows if you enjoyed the podcast please consider telling a friend it helps a lot big thanks to emily griffin who designed the logo you can find her at dave and thanks to mon Placer for our music you can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com thanks a lot for listening